Thanks, Steve. You can go ahead and, and grab a seat. Good morning. My name is, is Tim. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning and what's going to be our, our final week um, looking at the life of Moses, Deliver Us, in this series. And uh, as any life of, of anyone would, in, or, uh, would go, the, the last story, the last chapter is going to, be, going to be dealing with death. And so that's where we're at this week is the story of Moses' death. So why don't I pray for us and then we'll unpack the passage that, that Steve just read for us. Let's pray. God, I pray even now you would, you would quiet our hearts to open them up to, to have you speak to us. God, wherever we're, we're coming in from this week, whatever's on our hearts, whatever's on our mind, whether we, we believe in you and your, your presence is real in our life, or God, whether we don't believe you or whether your presence is just distant, God, I just believe when we open, open your word, it's, it can be a word spoken from, from you directly to us. I need that. Every person in this room needs that. So we plead for you now to be present among us. For the glory of your son, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Well, I've forgotten almost every sermon I've ever heard. Which, of course, raises the question, if, if I don't remember just about any sermon I've ever heard, why, why do I preach? Right? After all, I spend a lot of time working on sermons. You spend a lot of time listening to my sermons. So why keep after it, even though I know most likely there's a good chance at the end of today, neither you nor I are going to remember anything that was said today? Why do it? Well, many reasons, the, probably the most important one being, I believe any time this book is open and we start to speak from it, God can move and, and something can happen. And it may not be often, it may not even be most times, but there are moments when God cuts through and his word speaks and it gets past all the junk we put between us and him and it, it makes us change. I remember one of those sermons for me, it was um, a youth pastor named Jason who preached it. And, and the thing that I remember most is as he got out onto the stage to preach, he brought a box with him. And he told us it was his, his coffee table. At least that's where it was now. He built it himself. It was his coffee table. Most days it just held his feet up while he watched TV. But obviously it wasn't his coffee table because that's not a very interesting sermon illustration. It wouldn't make me remember even though that was 17 years ago. That he be, as, he, as he unpacked this coffee table, this box he built, he let us know this was his coffin. And he built it himself, and now it lived in his living room as a reminder, day after day, week after week, year after year, that's where he was headed. To remind himself that his life lived was going to have a singular destination, and it was going to land him in that box. I didn't forget, and even though I was 15, I wanted to build my own coffin, right? I know it's weird, it's kind of strange. At 15, I was just struck by that. It's like, let's go home, let's build our coffins, guys, right? I mean, that's not a normal experience for a high school student, right? If you're in high school, my guess is you probably weren't coming in thinking, I need to build my coffin this afternoon, I got stuff to do. And yet, that's how I I left that sermon. It left a mark on me, a reminder that, that the end of my life is headed for one place, and I have to live in light of the reality that, that someday my days will come to an end. And so I, I've, never, I've never forgotten that moment. And, and obviously, I hope, maybe you're weirded out by the idea of someone building their own coffee and using it as a sermon prop, it living in their living room. And yet I've never forgotten that sermon. And so why bring this up, right? Why talk about a guy who built his own coffin and the lasting impression it meant and it has left on me that I remember to this day what it looked like, 
the way he spun it around, he had it on wheels. So why? Why bring this up? Because I want all of us, every person in this room, to die well. And we don't talk about that. And we talk a lot as a church, as Christians in our culture, about delaying death, about praying for healing, about pushing death off as far as we can. And those are good things. We should pray to delay death. We should pray for healing. And yet, I want to suggest as Christians, a prayer we should be praying for one another regularly is that we would die well. Which raises the question, how do you die well? (laughs) What does that look like? What does that, that mean? Well, for six weeks, we've been looking at the life of Moses, and we've seen, firstly, Moses' many failures, right, that that he he murders an Egyptian, that when God comes at the burning bush and tells Moses, I'm going to have you go and deliver Israel out of the slavery of Egypt, Moses says, I can't do that, I'm not your guy, go get someone else. We see Moses' many failures, and yet we also see Moses' rich life, right, that Moses does incredible things. He speaks in power to Pharaoh. He watches as the the Red Sea, God splits the Red Sea and Israel passes through it. That we've seen Moses' rich life. And now today we're going to see Moses' death. The Moses, he's lived well through his failures, he's lived well through his life, and now he's going to live well at the end of his life, at his death. It's a good death. And this passage has moved me in in really surprising ways over the last two or three weeks as I reflected on, on preaching and this This death text in particular, this really unique text where we watch someone come to their end and die. And the one thing that I've really left in the last couple weeks, the thing that really was impressed on me, that sermon with that coffin, is that if you're going to die well, you have to start today. That's not something you do on your deathbed. Dying well is not something that happens as the closer you get to death. It has to start today, whether you're 15 or you're 50. Whether you're 16, whether you're 60, it doesn't matter how old you are. You have to, if you're going to die well, it starts today. The only, only way to die well is to live well. And if you're going to start today, this, this text is a helpful starting place. And as we unpack it, I, I want to unpack it by, by just pointing out that Moses', Moses failures weren't the end of his story. Moses' life wasn't the end of the story. And Moses' death wasn't the end of his story. Not his failures, not his life, not his death were the end of his story. So let's unpack this text in that way. First, our failure is not the end of the story. I think as we we begin to unpack this topic of death, it's at least worth asking the question, why do we all die? And I know that seems like a fairly obvious question because we all are going to die. I mean, we all know that, but yet why? And to me, death doesn't feel like a cozy neighbor that you invite over for dinner that that should live there. Death feels like an intruder, like someone who walked into my house and is sitting on my couch and I didn't invite here. The death is not a a good human reality and that's just a part of life. Death is an intruder and offense, our greatest enemy, as the Bible says. And I think it's at least worth asking the question, so why is death here? If If it's such an intruder, if it's such an enemy, if it's such a terrible force in our world, why is it even here? And what I find interesting about Moses' own story is that Moses knew why he was going to die. I mean, there was a moment in his life where God said, Moses, this is it right here. You're going to die because of this. And so here we come. Everything from that moment has led us to Deuteronomy 34. The thing about the rich, full life that Moses led, 
that Moses' life, it's been, it's been given to one thing, really, above all else, to, to see Israel, who is in slavery in Egypt, to be freed and to go through the wilderness and, and enter the promised land that God had, had said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm going to give you this land. That's all Moses' life was devoted to, to get e- e- Israel from here to there. And now here we are at Deuteronomy 34. We're on the cusp of that moment. And so God and Moses sort of climb Mount Nebo together. And they get to the top. And Moses looks out at all of the promised land. All the land that he's given his life to, to see Israel enter this land. He sees a good chunk of it. And then God says to Moses this in verse 4. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes. But you shall not go over there. That moment should, in some ways, kind of rip your heart out. God takes Moses to the top of Mount Nebo. He shows him the promised land, everything Moses has given his life to. And God says, but you're not going in. You have to stay out. Which raises the question, why? Why can't Moses enter? And the reason, the answer to that question is the moment where God looked at Moses and said, this is why you're going to die. This is why you're not going into the promised land. It's a story in Numbers chapter 20. And it's a story like several other stories in the course of the first five books of the Bible. That if you remember a few weeks ago, Andrew preached on the wilderness, on God providing manna, bread from the heavens for Israel to eat. Because if you're in the wilderness and you're the desert, there's not a lot of food there. So God had to provide it. And and also in the desert, in the wilderness, there's not a lot of water. And so what God did was he, he took this rock... And from the rock, God provided water for Israel. It's an amazing story. And, and so here in Numbers 20, a similar thing is happening again. They're thirsty. Israel's complaining. They look at Moses and Aaron and said, You guys, you brought us out of Egypt to have us die in the wilderness. And so again, God tells Moses, Find a rock. You're going you're gonna to speak to the rock and water's going to come out. They're going to drink again. And so Moses does provide water, or Moses does strike the rock again, and water comes out of the rock. But this time, there's something different about this story. And it's not entirely clear what it is. Moses is angry here. A lot of people thought it's Moses' anger. Moses maybe maybe disobeyed God in some way, but whatever it is, we're not exactly clear. It's not, it doesn't jump out at the page to you exactly what Moses has done that's so bad, but whatever it is, it comes when Moses says this. That Moses gets to the moment where he's going to provide water out of the rock, and he says this to Israel. Numbers, 10, or Numbers 20, verse 10. Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water? Shall me and Aaron bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses struck the rock with his, his staff, and water gushed forth. And whatever Moses did here, whatever happened here, it's why Moses won't go into the promised land. And here's my best guess as to what exactly is happening. Why there's this moment of Moses' failure. This verb, bring out, bring, bring out water. It's, it's, it's an important word throughout the entire Exodus story. In fact, just a few verses before, Israel has, has said to Aaron and Moses, you guys, you brought us out of Egypt. You're, you brought us out to die in the wilderness. And yet, the vast majority of usage of that word, God is always the subject. So when God speaks, God says, I am going to bring you out of Egypt. And when Moses speaks, Moses says, God, God is going to bring you, Israel, out of Egypt. And so when Moses says, 
I am bringing out water from this rock. There's more that's going on in that statement. And Moses is taking credit. He's standing in a place only God is supposed to stand. And so God responds. And he says to Moses this in verse 13 of of Numbers 20. Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me is holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Again, it's not exactly clear what it is, but my assumption is that Moses in that moment had a heart of arrogance and pride and said, you know what? That's fine. I'll get, I'll get you water out of the rock. And God's response to Moses is, you haven't gotten anything or anyone out of anywhere. That's me. Me alone. And maybe you hear that and you think, that, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, look at all Moses did for, for Israel, for God's people. Look at the, the brave stands he took, all he gave up for God. And yet he, he sort of has one angry moment, one bad statement. And God says, is going to withhold this incredible blessing from Moses for that one moment. Seems ridiculous, at least, at least to me. And yet, what's interesting is it doesn't seem ridiculous to Moses. I mean, Moses fights back against God in just about everything God says to him throughout the first five books of the Bible. Remember the burning bush. Moses says, send someone else. There's got to be someone else better. A story we didn't look at, Exodus 32, the golden calf. God says, you know what, Israel's screwed up so bad. Moses, I'm just going to start over with you. And Moses says, no, you're not, God. Don't forget Israel. And yet here in this moment and throughout the five books of the Bible, Moses never says to God, this isn't fair. Why don't I get to go into the promised land? Look at all I did for you. This isn't right. He never does that. Why? My best answer to that question is that, that Moses wrote, wrote one of our psalms. It's Psalm 90. And it's really a meditation, in many ways, on death. On our death. Why we're going to die. And in particular, verses 7 and 8 stand out to me. I think you can't read these verses without thinking of Numbers 20 in that story. Here's what Moses says in Psalm 90, verses 7 through 8, as he reflected on his own death. For we are brought to an end by your anger. And by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. That we are brought to an end by by God's anger. Our secret sins, they're brought out into the presence of God as we die. By God's wrath, we are, are doomed. Now, there's probably a lot of reactions you can have to that, but I think really two stand out. There's only really two roads you can take. There's lots of ways within those roads, but really only two responses. One is that you just think this is ridiculous. Right? God, an angry God, a wrathful God, a God who looks at our mistakes and says, well, you're going to die for that. Like what he says to Moses. Right? That, that we live in a culture that just sort of assumes God is love, God is patient with us, God doesn't care much about a few minor slip-ups, that God should have let Moses enter the promised land. This is a ridiculous Punishment. God's not like that. The Bible just, it's just, this is the Old Testament angry God that Moses is talking about. And yet, if that's how you feel, there, there's one statement that Moses makes that I just want to bring out for a minute. The, the idea that our secret sins that are brought out into the open. That, that just think of the last week of your life, or maybe the last month of your life. What you've done, what you've said, what you've left unsaid, what you wanted to say but you didn't say. The way you've thought about other people. All the thoughts you've had. 
And imagine we just came in this morning and we said, you know, we're not going to have church. Instead, what we're going to do, we're just going to play your, your last month. Your thoughts, not the images you wanted other people to see, right? Not the smiles you put on, not the masks you put on so other people think that you're, you're okay or you're fine or you're good. But, I mean, your whole life. That's terrifying, right? I don't want that to happen. I mean, part of me is like, I don't want to preach that because what if God did that to me? I mean, he could. He's got a sense of humor. That's terrifying to think about. And, and there's a reason it's terrifying. There's a reason we try to hide that stuff. We keep it away. And I would say it's because God is rightfully angry at the way you and I think and act and live. And what's coming out in this moment with Moses in Numbers 20 is his real heart that, you know what, God, I'm just going to, I don't need you. I can live my life without you. And if, if, if our entire thoughts, our entire lives were laid bare, I think we could say, you know, maybe God has a little bit of right to be angry at the way I use my mind, the way I use my thoughts, the way I'm living. There can be a little bit of anger there. So that, that's one way, is to think God's ridiculous. I don't think, I don't think that's going to bring you life, though, because what Moses shows us is if you're going to die well, dying well starts with repentance. It's the only other way out. Is either you can think God shouldn't be angry, he shouldn't be mad at me, he should just get over it, or you think a big chunk of your life is going to have to be repentance. And I would say Psalm 90 is, an, is a psalm of repentance. The Deuteronomy 34 is really a chapter of repentance. Right? Even this moment where Moses lays his hand on Joshua and then says to Joshua, all right, this is your thing now and I'm going up the mountain to die. <laughs> it's an act of repentance. And repentance, really, it's at the center of the Christian life. I would say it's all of the Christian life to many realities. The repentance, it's to come to terms with your brokenness, that you are far more flawed than you let other people see, or that even you won't yourself realize. You're far more broken than you feared. And yet, it's okay. I mean, Moses had serious failures. He murdered a guy. He, he questioned God in many moments in ways he should never have done. This Numbers 20 moment where he sinfully put himself in the place of God. And yet the, his failures, Moses' failures, were not the end of his story. And he lived a life of repentance. Dying well starts with repentance. So I would ask, do you? Do you repent to God? Do you repent to others? Are you living a life of repentance? And, and maybe more specifically, what do you need to repent of? Both to God and to, to the people around you, to your family, to your life. Are you living a life of repentance? Because if you want to die well, it starts there. It starts with repentance. But you can't stop there. Your failures are not the end of your story. It means, means you've got to repent. Dying well starts with repentance. But second, your life is not the end of the story. And I'm not sure if many of you have heard of, of the book, All the Light We Cannot See. It's a powerful book. It won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. It's, it's a beautiful and terrible story around, set around a blind girl during World War II. And at one point in, in the book, really just in passing, it describes one particular soldier. How that soldier was going to become a barber after the war was over. And what kind of barber that soldier was going to become after the war was over. But that soldier was scheduled to die on the beaches of Normandy. Which means he was not going to become the barber described by the author. And that moment, it's really meant to take the air out of your lungs. It's sort of this reminder that, that there's a date that you're going to die and you will do nothing past that date. And it's a schedule, it's, it's an appointment, and it's, it's an appointment you're not going to be able to delay and you're not going to be able to escape. 
And Moses knew this to the extent that you and I don't. I mean, God had said, you're not going to enter the promised land, which meant the closer Moses got to the promised land, the more he knew, he, the closer he was getting to death. Right? Like he knew there was a geographical limit. Once he got past that ge- geographical limit, he was going to die. And Israel marched closer and closer to the promised land. Moses knew he was getting closer and closer to his own death. That's why I think Psalm 90, Moses goes where he goes next, which is so informative to us, so important for us to hear, that after he says, listen, we die because God is angry with us because the way we use our lives and, and, and we sin, and, and then next he goes, he goes here. After, after that moment, he goes here in Psalm 90. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Teach us to number our days, to understand there is, there is a moment, there is a day, there is a time which your work is done. And so what that means, dying well, it means repenting first. But second, dying well means numbering our days. That your, your days are set to end. I mean, if you knew it, you could get out your calendar right now on your iPhone. You could put it in. And each day towards that day would be a reminder. My days are numbered. And I, I would say this means one of two things is true for us. If, if our days are numbered, if there is a, a set day where our existence ends, one of two things is true. One is, is if there's no God... Then what Thomas Nagel, an atheist philosopher, what he said about your death is, is true. Here's what he wrote. He says, eventually the solar system will cool or the universe will wind down and collapse and all trace of your effort will vanish. If you think about the whole thing, it wouldn't have mattered if you never existed. Now, I want to suggest if whether you believe in God or not, no one lives like that's true. We are all, every one of us, living like like our lives, like our efforts matter, right? That's, that's why you give what you give your life to. It's why you work so hard at raising your kids, why you, you forgive or why you repent. It's why you spend so much of your time loving. It's why you care, hopefully, for the poor, the vulnerable, those who are left behind in society because you know everything you give your life to in this life matters and will not be forgotten. That it's not true that in the end it won't matter whether or not you existed or whether or not how you lived your life will have made no difference whatsoever because the universe will wind down and cease to exist. We're, none of us are living like that's true. And maybe you say, if you don't believe in God, well, okay, but it still matters how you live. Loving is better than hate, right? It's better to give yourself than to keep yourself, and all that's true. But here's the question, <clears throat> excuse me, here's the question I would ask if, if you don't believe in God. It's, which view of life is more coherent? Which view of life makes better sense of the way in which you're living now? That in the end, your life's going to wind down and you'll cease to exist, and then the universe will cease to exist, and no one will remember anything, and no one will care what you did. Or are you living like your life matters? Because it does. Because it will be remembered. And the good you give your life to now, the, the, the selfless ways you give yourself away for those around you, that story will never be forgotten. If you're living like it's true, maybe it is true. And maybe the Christian story makes better sense of how you're living your life. So dying well, it means numbering your days. And one, one thing that can mean is, listen, that's all you got left. And then after that, it's over. Or, second, it's, 
Dying, it's not, a, it's not like a clock that's winding down and then it dies. Instead, dying is more like what Moses' death was like. It's a, it's a long walk to meeting the one who created you for life. And if that's what death is, then you're going to look at your death totally different. That if there's a God, there's not some random day when you're going to cease to exist and the universe is going to get you or death is going to get you. It means God himself, who set the day for you to be born, has also set the day for you to die. He has scheduled that appointment and he is not going to break it and he's not going to move it. That day is set, which also, to me, actually is strangely encouraging. It means your death is personal. Right? It's, not, it's not some impersonal moment that's just going to get you. God knows whether it's a disease, whether it's a freak accident, whatever is going to take you from this world, God knows and he's decided what it is already. That, that really unpacks or for me gets at the description of Moses' own death in verse 5, which is really beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of Moses' death. Hear what, how the, the author describes it, verse 5. So, the Moses, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. That phrase, according to the word of the Lord, it's an idiom in Hebrew, which literally means literally by the mouth of the Lord. Moses died there on Mount Nebo by the mouth of the Lord. At the picture of the language, it's intimate, it's embrace. And so early Jewish commentators picked up on that, and they described this death scene as death by a kiss. Death by the embrace of God. And I just I want to push into this further to say, listen, when, when you come to your last days, and if you know, and in a lot of cases, because of our medical advances, because of our, our technology, many of us, we know when we're going to die. We know. It's, it's more set out in front of us. When you come to those last days, you're only going to have three options on, on your table. One is there's no God. You're about to be snuffed out of existence. It doesn't matter. And again, I would just, I would just ask you again, if you're not living like that, why would you die like that? If you're living like your life matters beyond your grave, why would you get to your deathbed and, and die with that on your mind? You're not living like that, so don't die like that. Or, or two, you, there is a God and you've lived your whole life, maybe not ignoring him, but definitely not receiving him, not listening to him, not following him, not letting him set the tone, the reality for your life. And on your deathbed, listen, every world religion at least agrees on this point. If that's the way you've lived your life, your deathbed is not going to be a good place for you. And I can tell you the Bible is very clear on this, that if you lived your life ignoring God in this life, you're going to ignore him in the next life, and it's going to be disastrous for you. To give your life over to this God who, as he is depicted here, is not a God who's just angry at Moses, but also is his loving father. Because that's the third way you can, you can approach your deathbed, is that there is a God and you've lived in His grace. As Moses says in Psalm 90, each morning you've woken up to His steadfast love. You've prayed to Him. You've gave thanks. You've looked ahead to your day knowing He's planned it and His steadfast love will guide you through it whether there are tears or joys for you in the coming hours. And if that's been your life, that will be your death. What waited for Moses at his death? Death by a kiss. Where death doesn't greet you as some random event of which you had no control and it's disastrous, but instead, death is a moment more like a father greeting his child with a kiss on the forehead and his hand outstretched to grab yours and lead you on. That that's the image we get of Moses' death here. And that's the death you're invited to by God. 
to remember your days are numbered. That day is coming when you will meet him and meet him like a father, a loving, gracious father as Moses did. So dying well, it means repenting. It means numbering our days because our failures aren't the end of our story. Our life isn't the end of our story. And finally, our death is not the end of the story. That when I read Deuteronomy 34, it just the first four verses almost seem cruel to me. We have a picture up here of, of what Mount Nebo is and, and what Moses would have looked at, looked at as God sort of shows him all of the land. Um, he looks at, at Mount Gilead, and, or, or the land of Gilead, and, and God says, but Moses, you're not going to live there. Oh, and there's, there's Dan over there. Moses, you're not going there either. It's almost like God just says, hey, here are all the places that you're never going to see, but from this spot standing on the mountain. It almost seems cruel. I think the reason, I was reflecting on this this weekend, I think the reason why is, is I've told you before, I'm terrified of flying. I think I'm going to die every time I get in an airplane. It's, it's, it's weird, it's irrational, I know that. But what I, what I didn't understand was why my fear of death was increasing the older I got. Right, like it should be decreasing. I mean, I remember eighth grade, like I, I flew out to Arizona by myself. I ate like two McDonald's breakfast sandwiches, which is just terrible for you. And then I got on the plane, I flew, I was fine. And now when I got on the, the I could fast for days, I can pray, I can plead with God. I'm still terrified. I'm gonna die, I think I'm gonna die every time I get on a plane. And I, I think I know why the my fear has increased, at least the older I've gotten. It's because now when I get on a plane, I'm 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 leaving behind a wife, a three-and-a-half-year-old, a one-and-a-half-year-old, and a, a, a son on the way. And if there's anything I love giving my life to, it's, it's trying to, to take these, these crazy little things and make them into men. I mean, to me, I feel like that's the, if there's anything I want to spend the rest of my days doing, it's that. And every time I get on a plane, I'm like, I may be cut off from that work. <laughs> that work may be stopped for me if this plane doesn't land wherever it's going. And it increases my, my terror, I think, because... I rest so much of my identity in my life in the work that I'm accomplishing and the things I want to do, right, and the things that I want to get done in this life. And yet, the reality is, if you're going to die well, you're going to have to come to terms right now and for the rest of your life that dying well means leaving good work, leaving work unfinished. You're not going to do everything you want to do in life. And Moses is a powerful and terrible reminder of that standing on Mount Nebo. Everything he's given his life to is to get Israel to the promised land, and Moses is not going with him. He will die on the outside. And whatever it is you want to spend your days doing, your life doing, you may not get to it. And dying well means leaving work unfinished. That your life, it, listen, it's not a contract God took out with you that if you, once you get certain things done, then you go. No, God will end it when he wants to end it. And that has two implications for all of us. One is, is I would encourage you, leave work, leave your work off to the next generation. Right, that's this beautiful moment with Moses over, uh, over Joseph saying, uh, or Joshua saying to him, it's yours, buddy. Lays his hands and Moses leaves. And I would just say, in your vocation, in your workplace, in your family, here in the church as well, maybe most importantly to some extent, whatever it is you're doing, whatever it is you've learned, whatever it is you've gained, give it to the next generation. Hand it off. Because you're not going to finish all you want to do, but maybe they can get some of the stuff done you never got to. Dying well means leaving work unfinished, which means you're going to need to leave work to the next generation. But more importantly, this is one thing I do not want you to miss, is that your story is not your story. Right? We've told this, this whole life of Moses, deliver us, right? Moses has done a lot of cool things, but this is not the story of Moses. This is the story of God who decided, I'm going to use Moses and let him be in my story. And that's the beauty of, or the beauty of that then is, is, if it's not your story, you don't have to finish it. You can leave work undone. 
Which is the best news, because Moses knows his, God's faithfulness is going to outlast Moses' life. God's promises are going to outlast Moses' life. Moses doesn't have to do everything because God's the one who has to do everything. And if that's true, and it is, it's why Moses could give his life so freely to the mission of God. And I would just encourage you in your life, give freely to the mission of God. Give freely to the church. Share the gospel with your friends. Share the gospel with your kids. Do not withhold to the story God is telling in his mission in this world. Because that mission, when you look back to Genesis 1 to today, is a powerful promise of what God's already done and what he's going to finish. He started this good work. He's going to complete it. So give your life to the local church, to the gospel, to God's mission, because This story will end, but not because you and I tell it well or you and I finish it, because God is going to finish. Moses knew that, which is why he could hand off the work, go up the mountain and die, even though everything he lived his life for, he will not see accomplished. And of course, that raises a question. How do you know that you can do that? That you can hand off, both hand off work to be done to others, that, that, that God will finish every good work you've started in your life? How can you know you can actually repent and that God will actually forgive you? How, that you know, how can you know that if you number your days, God actually will meet you in the end. You won't die alone on your deathbed, abandoned, or that God's not there. How can you know that? And here's where Moses, he's no help to us. Because Moses goes on the mountain and he dies. And, and even if it appears God buries him because no one knows where he's buried. So Moses just dies on the mountain. No one even knows what happened to him, where he is, where his body is. Moses can't help you die well. And I think Moses knew his own limitations. I mean, that's, I hope that's been clear throughout the story. We even see Moses just outwardly question his own ability. And yet there's this other moment in Deuteronomy 18 where Moses, who is the greatest prophet in all the Old Testament, as we read in Deuteronomy 34. And listen, the Old Testament's a long book. I'll, I'll spoil it for you. If you read the whole thing, he is the best prophet. There's no doubt. He's the best prophet. And yet in Deuteronomy 18, Moses seems to suggest there's got to be a better prophet than him. A better prophet than him that won't go up in the mountain and die and no one one know where he went. Someone who can actually stand before God and speak for the people. Someone who can actually intercede between God and the people and save the people before God. Who can do more than Moses did. Friends, the story of the gospel is that that better prophet has come in Jesus. And that Jesus also climbed a mountain to die called Golgotha. And he died on that mount. So that you and I could know, if we repent, if we live a life of repentance, there is forgiveness at every turn. So that we could know every good work that we started will be finished and complete in Christ. So that we know, as we number our days and we point to that last day on which you and I will die, we'll be met there. That we will not die alone. That Christ was the one who died, out, who died alone, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I would not cry out alone. At our death, that we know we would be met by our God because Christ wasn't. And Jesus, we also don't know where he was buried, but not because we don't know where the tomb is. We know where the tomb is, it's just empty. He left, rose on the third day to new life. And if you want to die well, that's a good person to follow. Someone who went into his grave and came out alive. If you want to die well, I would follow that guy. And his tomb, to this day, is still empty. And if that's true, then you have the makings of following after someone who's worth following after. To live a life well lived so you can have a a death well died. You can live full and die well. Like Moses. 
Like, what a life, right? I mean, the, the last seven weeks, what a life Moses had lived. And yet, let's be honest, none of us, we're not parting any Red Seas, right? We're not going to free an entire nation from slavery. You and I, we're not going to do half the things. We're not going to do a third of the things. We're not going to do any of the things Moses did, right? I mean, we're not going to live a good, as good a life as Moses. And yet, it doesn't mean you and I can't die well and live, live a wake of grace behind us. That a couple of weeks ago, I went to a, a funeral um, for, for someone, a family member of someone who attends our campus. You guys know her well. Her name's Corey Farrell. She leads our children's ministry. She's a volunteer. She does such an amazing job um, for us. Well, her dad died um, suddenly and tragically a couple weeks ago down in Wichita of a heart attack. And so me and Andrew and a bunch of people, actually, from Crash Community drove down there just to support her and, and to love her. And it, was a, it was a powerful hour, hour and a half for me that was so clear. Stu, her dad, lived a full life and died well, even though he died earlier than, than any, any of his family, any of his friends would have hoped. And my favorite moment in the funeral was when uh, Stu, was, he, he, he worked for Crown Financial, which is a, a ministry, a Christian ministry designed to help people steward their wealth well. And what's interesting is, is the whole ministry is, is really, in some ways, founded on, on a couple verses in First Chronicles. Right? And some of you are like, is that in the Bible, or where, where is that? First Chronicles, I've never heard that, right? And most of us don't know it's in the Bible. I don't know, do we know any actually verses in First Chronicles? And so there was this moment in the funeral where the, the guy giving the eulogy had basically the entire room quote those verses from First Chronicles because Stu had taught them in giving out his life to teach them financial stewardship in light of the gospel. And like the whole room knew verses from First Chronicles. I don't know about you, that's impressive to me. I don't know any verses from First Chronicles. I don't think you do either, and, and yet because his life well lived, people understood God's, God's graciousness and how to give and be generous in their lives because of the way he spent his days. And then the eulogy ended and his five kids, his five kids got up and it was a moment no one had any tears left. Our hearts were full. And it was a reminder that, that even though many, many of us in that room, at least for me, I didn't know Stu. And yet I live downstream from his grace. All the goodness of who Corey is, the good job she does here, is in many ways downstream from him. And that's not to say that that's perfect. One of the best moments of the eulogy was, or was the repeated reality of Stu repenting of sin, of turning his life back over to God. He, he, he wasn't perfect, and yet he lived full. And now you and I, we live, even though none of us in here probably know him, or a few of us may, maybe do, but most of us don't know him, and yet we live in his grace because of Corey. And Corey's not here, so I'm going to brag on her. I mean, she does an amazing job for us. It's humble, gives more of her time, maybe than anyone else here. Gets here early, sets up our, our kids' ministry stuff week after week after week. And she, she's given her life, sold out for the mission of God because she learned it from a dad who sold out his life and his mission to his God. And you and I now live in the shadow of his grace through Corey. Every Sunday she's here, every time she makes you laugh or smile or encourages you, we live in his grace he died well because he lived well. And you and I get to taste that grace. Just a normal life. And I would just encourage you that. You follow after Jesus and that's the, that's, that's the wake you leave. That's the shadow you leave. So uh, driving home from Wichita from the funeral, I was reminded by, of a book by an author, um, Indy Wilson. He's a Christian. He wrote a book about dying called Death by Living. And I wanted to, I wanted to end us with, with his words because you, if, if you're Christian, if you're in Christ... You can live full. You can fall after Christ with all you have and die well because you know his tomb is empty. So you can repent. You can know your days are numbered. It's fine. You can live full. You can die well because the tomb is empty. And so Indy Wilson writes these words that I want to close this with. 
So if Christ's tomb is empty, drink your wine, laugh from your gut, burden your moments with thankfulness. Be as empty as you can when the clock winds down. Spend your life. And if time is a river, may you leave awake. As by his grace, we are the water made wine. We are the dust made flesh, made dust, made flesh again. We are the whores made brides, and the thieves made saints, and the killers made apostles. But we are the dead made living. Let's pray.